Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast coming at you from Pierre, South Dakota, and I am your host, Bob St. Pierre. We pronounce it differently than the town in my family, but uh, we'll go Pierre, South Dakota, Bob St. Pierre, and we are in the South Dakota Game, Fish, and Parks office in the capital city of South Dakota. In this episode, we're going to be talking about turning South Dakota's 8.3 million acres of saline soils, I'll say that again, saline soils, into a conservation success story. Uh, Introducing one of our guests today is a voice familiar with uh, listeners um, to the On The Wing podcast. He was with me for, I believe, episode five-ish, the uh, the 2018 pheasant hunting forecast for South Dakota. Matt Morlock, before we get too far in, saline soils. Give me a visual so uh, listeners know what we're talking about. Yeah, no problem. That And it's an easy one to paint. It's You picture the most devoid landscape that you can pick, picture. That's what you have, saline soils. Um, they're... they're a product of water movement in crop fields, um, water usage, that kind of stuff. Um, you get these spots. They can be a half an acre in size. They can be 40 acres in size. You'll have a, a gorgeous cornfield, bean field that's growing a nice crop. And all of a sudden there's these spots that are white that have nothing on them, mm-hmm. absolutely totally nothing on them. Um, so there's zero biodiversity going on. There's zero life going on in these spots. And it's Strictly from water column movement, usage, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, over time, a productive soil can turn to saline if the right chemicals, right elements are in that soil column that would cause that high salt content to show up. So that's what this episode is going to focus in on. And you heard me right out of the gates. 8.3 million acres of opportunity yep. because of, for lack of a better term, salty Salty. Salty we dirt. Go salty. Salty dirt. Yep. It's uh, Not salty dogs. Salty dirt. Salty dirt. And salty dirt across the state of South Dakota. Yep. We'll, we'll talk into the uh, biology of the opportunity and um, kind of what's, what's happened um, over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, the, it, it has been, the saline soils has been the genesis of a, a newish program it's a couple years old now but a newer program between pheasants forever and the south dakota corn growers um and it's brought the agriculture community and the hunting community together around a conservation need that um, both communities can see a huge opportunity 8.3 million acres of opportunity and to talk about this program Along with Matt Morlock for, for this particular episode, Matt being the state coordinator for Pheasants Forever in the state of South Dakota, we have a, a longtime friend and former co-worker at Pheasants Forever, Jim Ristow, now employed by, let's see what's, what's on your shirt today, South Dakota Corn. That's right. So what, what's your title with uh, South Dakota Corn? I am the uh, Director of Sustainability for South Dakota Corn. I've been serving in that role for about a little over three years now. Uh, it's actually a position that was created in partnership with NRCS uh, just to try to help farmers get better practices on the land. 
towards sustainability and, and uh, you know, just a healthier environment. So, uh, you know, that, that role really uh, led me down uh, a learning path about soil health. Hmm. And, and, uh, and as you start to discover what soil health means and, and what it's about, hmm you realize there's really these common denominator issues that I don't care if you're a water quality person, a farmer uh, looking for yield, a wildlife enthusiast, it all kind of centers around soil health as as a common denominator, Hmm. as I like to say. So if we don't take care of that resource, all these other things aren't going to matter. We need to take care of our soils. But if we take care of that, it all takes care of itself. And right. And we, can all, we all win out of it. And that was, you know, that's why this partnership has been so successful is we have something that, and it's an easy thing for a producer to look at and say, I got a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to benefit from putting perennial vegetation on this. And we're looking at it like we get habitat out of it. Right. So it's just that perfect low-hanging fruit. So it, it was never intended to be a, uh, you know, a pheasant producer. It was intended to be help a farmer manage these soils that aren't functioning the way they're capable. Okay. And it, that's to his benefit. So, so I want to get into the program, but I also want to, um, for folks that don't know you guys, <clears throat> I want to just give, provide a little bit of background first too, and then introduce our fourth guest. So, so Matt, you, ha- you have a biology degree, yep. right? What, what's your uh, primary emphasis in biology? Were you a wildlife Yep, uh, wildlife and fishery science um, was my major back in college, back a couple, 20 years ago. And Jim, you have a biology degree too, right? Uh, close. I'd, in When I was in college, there was a program called environmental management. So okay. I have a degree in environmental management, and it was really, uh, you know, at the time, you know, you're just trying to get through college, and it turns out that that was really excellent training for what I'm doing yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. It's just a broad scope of, you know, chemistry, physics, uh, agronomy, wildlife, all kind of blended together. So. And you're also a um, devout bird hunter. I am. You got a couple of bird dogs. I I only have one at the current time. Okay. That, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I've had multiple dogs over the years. <laughs> And uh, rounding out our, our guest list today is uh, one of the funniest guys, maybe the funniest guy in uh, the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever employee contingent. You know, I'm kind of propping you up to be a comedian on this. You don't don't feel any pressure, Ben. Uh, ben Lardy, who you have uh, the only person that has this job title in the entire organization, right? Yeah. Well, and what is that <coughs> job title? Yeah, so uh, Pheasants Forever's first soil health specialist or soil health biologist um, here based in the state. Uh, basically, kind of similar to what Jim was talking about with his position, that's, you know, really finding, you know, there's there's so many opportunities to create bird habitat on working lands, mm-hmm. uh, cropland, rangeland, patch land, and, uh, you know, we always talk about CRP as being one of our primary tools to, create birds, create pheasants. Um, but, you know, we only have had about a million acres of CRP in the state, whereas cropland and rangeland, there's, I think, close to 80 million acres wow. out there. And uh, and relatively, pheasants forever doesn't doesn't work with that, doesn't touch that. And But there's definitely win-win situations and ways to 
help provide either some sort of temporary habitat, seasonal habitat, maybe even nesting cover someday, you know, as the pie in the sky out on a cornfield. Maybe we can nest a pheasant out there. And so this position is kind of based around trying to find habitat opportunities in areas that we normally wouldn't think about and also just helping out farmers in their bottom line. So, so uh, give me, pay me a visual of that pie in the sky where a pheasant is going to nest in, in a uh, rows of corn. Is that where they're, yeah, there's grass and interseeded in between those corn rows? Yep, pretty much. And that, that grass is going to be a cover crop of potentially maybe rye, winter wheat, triticale, something like that, an overwintering what crop. What was the last? Uh, tri- tri- triticale, which is a hybrid between winter wheat and rye, I believe. Huh. And, um, yeah, that is going to provide enough residue. Now, this is, again, this is pretty pie-in-the-sky sure. stuff. But, I mean, that's that's hopefully someday what we could accomplish. And uh, um, there's some trials being done right now uh, where – you know, we're seeing, obviously, you know, a pheasant trying to avoid a corn planter is a pretty scary thing when mm-hmm. she's got a nest out there. But it, there's there's some things that, you know, with technology advancements and, and equipment advancements where that could potentially happen or, or the right cover crop blend. And uh, um, But otherwise, as far as pheasants go, I mean, there's just tremendous brood rearing potential and, uh, in, in any type of cover crop situation. Are there landowners trying, experimenting with that those concepts right now in South Dakota? Yeah, yeah, there is. And... Uh, Partners that are Ducks Unlimited there is doing some research on that. Um, we have some other producers just kind of doing it on their own and mm. and giving some anecdotal evidence. Um, there's a fellow up in North Dakota actually doing something called, not to get too far in the weeds, but bio strip till, where he's doing rye and then cover crops that terminate. So, and that's where the planter will go through the next year. And so hopefully, it might be a way to avoid that, that nesting damage. But anyways, again, not to get too far yeah. in the weeds. But yeah, One of the cool things I've, I've seen is... We have a part good partnership with the Soil Health Coalition that they're trying some stuff on 60-inch cornrows mm-hmm. and then cover crops between. Mm-hmm. So you're, you got a, corn, a row of corn and a 60-inch gap before your next row of corn. And they're putting cover crops and stuff in between. That's good, especially brood habitat. Tremendous. I, yeah. might, I saying, might build on that. Yeah. You know, uh, Dwayne Beck at Dakota Lakes Research Farm, which is, you know, they're, they've been doing a lot of work on these sustainable farming systems. And one of his uh, plots that he's been doing long-term is 60-inch corn with alfalfa, a perennial. And on the whole farm, that plot is the one that has sequestered the most carbon or built the most organic matter in the hmm. soil. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. As a, can a corn, Look at what that could do for the you know, life cycle analysis of carbon. Mm-hmm. We can build carbon and still grow these great yields, a perennial and an annual together. Right. And there's room for a pheasant. There's room for bugs. There's room for all those things in there. So, you know, we're really on the verge of a lot of cool things. Yeah, because, you know, you talk about nesting cover being maybe the, the pinnacle of the opportunity, right? But... Uh, it's probably more realistic from my perspective, the non-farmer biologist in the group, that brood cover inter- interceded between corn is probably even higher probability. And then maybe even higher than that is winter cover. After harvest, just having some potential grasses left on the on the field so it's not black dirt, right? Is that, so maybe winter cover top opportunity, brood cover second, and nesting cover maybe the the greatest hope? Somewhere 
close to that. I'd say brooding is actually probably the, the easiest uh, to accomplish. Okay. Although I did pop a couple of roosters out of some barley cover crop last November. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, my dad always asked, well, what, what the heck do you do for a job? And I said, this, this right here, you know, and, yeah. uh, yeah. And he got one out of there too. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, got to rub his nose in a little bit that <laughs> these cover crops are, uh, capable of holding birds and they're there for a reason. You so know? think about our audience, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members. There's, there's a, significant percentage that are connected to the farm community probably 20 percent but there's a big percentage that you know are, are dog lovers bird hunters but they might not know what cover crop means yeah, explain a cover crop to me you bet um so cover crop is a uh, is just a, a a vegetative tool basically um and it uh, can do a variety of things for the soil uh for the producer for, for cattle um but it's a uh and basically a non-cash crop um, you're not harvesting it necessarily for seed or for grain, um, but you're usually planting that either, like we talked about, within a mm-hmm. cash crop or after a cash crop. And the idea is to um, basically try to try to harness the power of the plant of capturing CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it in your soil, okay. therefore building organic matter, building soil carbon. Um, you know, it's providing cover for not just pheasants, all sorts of other wildlife pollinators, mm-hmm. um, Jim's cover crop at his farm actually we just went out there the other day and had a bunch of uh, monarch butterflies a regal fritillary um honeybees and uh but I mean their main tool is to you know capture carbon uh they're going to be able to graze that here for their livestock and uh rest their pastures a little bit because of it um but yeah the the whole purpose of a cover crop is uh is a non-harvested maybe by cow but non-harvested crop that's going to help amend the soil a bit so Cash crops, corn, beans, wheat, sorghum, sunflowers, flax. Yep, yep. Uh, typical flax, oats. They know you hit oats. most of the big ones around us. And then the state. Yep. cover crops would be oh, geez. rye. Yep, rye is pretty popular. Rye, turnips, radishes, rapeseed. Um, although a lot of these cash crops can also be used as cover crops. We're just not, you mm. know, we're just not harvesting them. Um, but Winter wheat? Winter wheat as well, peas, um, hmm. we do use a lot of buckwheat, uh, um, pretty much anything you think of. I mean, Jim had, you had watermelons in your other cover crop two years ago. <laughs> Did you really? the cows were munching on those. Oh. Yeah. Uh, pumpkins? Anything can yeah. be a cover crop, really. And, and, you know, we mentioned winter wheat, which is a fabulous opportunity to come in behind corn or beans mm-hmm. and just get something green and growing in the spring and mm-hmm. to use up some of that excess moisture. And, you know, it's just anything green is a solar panel Mm -hmm. and and you think of let's fill all these windows of time that we have to grow something winter wheat will start growing under the snow in march yeah you know and it'll do well and you know it's better than bare ground and and you know the whole food chain benefits from that so i got two questions um and i think we're gonna go um (laughs) we kind of got off no 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 no, i've got two really so i want to ask about um Ben, I'm going to pose this question first, but you're going to answer it second. (laughs) Um, It's, I want to understand better uh, the connection to why Pheasants Forever would have a soil specialist, how soil connects to to birds, right? And then Jim, you know, from a South Dakota corn perspective, um, your your title, as as you mentioned, was, let me find it here, is a sustainability director for South Dakota corn. Why does South Dakota corn care about sustainability? Why do they care about soil? Explain the connection between sustainability and soil and natural resources and um, the corn 
I keep wanting to say Corn Growers Association, but yeah. it's South Dakota Corn, right? South Dakota Corn, yeah, that's that's the title we go by. It's actually two different organizations merged under the one heading. Oh, okay. One's a one's a grower organization. The other is a checkoff organization. Gotcha. So they, they generate some money through, uh, you know, the, the sale of corn. Gotcha. But, um, uh, you know, sustainability is defined by a lot of people uh, – has three three legs uh economics something something's got to work long term where somebody's making a little money to if you're going to continue doing it uh there's a social aspect people have to be socially acceptable to what you're doing and they're willing to buy your food or or whatever it is you're selling and then there's an environmental component the third leg which whatever you're doing can't destroy where you live and and that's what sustainability is. So, uh, you know, that's what a farmer is doing every day is trying to fit into this and feed the world. Right. You know, we, we, we've got to be able to eat and we've got to be able to live where we live and we've got to have clean water. And, and, uh, and you know, if you've got to make a living, you've got to feed the family, send your kids to school like everybody wants to do. And, and it's tougher and tougher to do that. And so the farmer... You know, he's asking these same questions as, you know, how do I, how do I keep moving forward in this environment mm-hmm. with so many different aspects coming uh, that can change how I do my business? Right. So organizations, uh, uh, you know, develop around preserving that lifestyle and, and, and that way of life and his ability to farm and feed the world and do what he does as well as create space for wildlife and give them a, a healthy place to live. And, uh, you know, we're asked to do all that as farmers. And, and so I guess that's my role is, mm-hmm. is how do we help, uh, navigate this? Sure. Uh, you know, you look at water quality issues in Iowa, for instance, and sometimes maybe farmers are painted as the, the bad guy or, or, or not, but, uh, you know, we, we would really like to uh, look at opportunities here that we can uh, solve some of these issues and maintain what we do right. by making sure we watch ourselves and, and sure. watch what we do as well as engage in, mm-hmm. in the larger community and discussion and say, you know, learn about what we're doing. But we, all, we also want to listen to what you're doing and what your concerns right. are and what can we do better. You can take a look <clears throat> at the great big picture from production to the environment and like you say the finances from um on the farm to overall industry and figure out a way to be a trusted advisor wearing the logo on your shirt that says south dakota corn you get their best interest but then also coming at it from a perspective with you know an environmental scientist and say okay here's how we can achieve yeah. all goals that's that uh, that's very cool um all right, to Ben, my question about soil and the connection to pheasants. I boil that down to uh, to a marketing guy like me. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, dirt and pheasants. Uh, that those two things really, you know, they don't they don't go along. But when we're talking, you know, when we're talking soil and soil health um, versus say soil quality, uh, mm-hmm. soil health is a biological concept. It's uh, um, the fact that the soil is an ecosystem with millions upon millions of critters uh 
you know, making that work. Um, but anyways, it's so there's uh, there's no reason to think that, you know, we should be doing this as a bottom up approach, um, you know, from from the ground up. And basically the it's not so much the healthy soil is going to create better habitat on its own, but it's the practices and the principles of soil health that can have tremendous benefits for for birds and other wildlife. Um, real quick, the principles of soil health, um, minimizing soil disturbance, tillage or, you know, chemical disturbance, keeping the soil covered, having a heavy residue out there, um, uh, increasing diversity, which is the ability to cover crops or diverse crop rotations, which, you know, we talk about a lot, winter wheat, small grains, uh, oats, um, things like that are very beneficial for pheasants. Hmm. Um, so that's just one, one direct example of how, you know, people that are implementing diverse crop rotations are going to have typically better bird and wildlife populations as well. Um, so we had diversity. Um, oh. Livestock. Well, livestock. So you had livestock. Number of livestock integration. The bird and the herd we talk about sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're going to be hunting grouse out uh, in, in prime cattle country, and there's a reason why those birds are out there thriving, and it's well-managed uh, livestock. And, uh, geez, the was it a living root that you Yep, missed? keep a living root. Yep, yeah. which means, uh, you know, again, that's going to be through cover crops. Jim was talking about those windows um, where, say, after wheat harvest, we just have a mm-hmm. wheat stubble field. Well, now let's get some new solar panels out there building carbon, creating habitat for wildlife. Um, so those, those types of principles that, uh, that benefit soil, but also benefit that whole agro ecosystem, the soil, the surface level, the vegetation above it, the wildlife that are utilizing it, and... Um, really yeah. really getting an understanding of the carbon cycle which we just have ignored in agriculture and in wildlife honestly yep. uh, you know i think that we're getting really down in the weeds yeah, with, like, with yeah. nutrient cycling here <clears> but <throat> you know some crps that uh maybe have been sprayed because of weed issues or whatever and pretty soon they're missing a, a legume component and you end up with an environment that's way too heavy in carbon but no nitrogen so the nutrients don't cycle anymore and it kind of goes and everyone has seen these old crps Mm -hmm. that really just don't have a whole lot of life in them including pheasants Mm -hmm. so there's a management issue in there that we 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 got the carbon and nitrogen cycle out of whack and this is a really complex subject as far as what's involved with carbon but we really yet it's so simple it's it's we get sunshine it goes through a plant spits out through the soil as glucose that bacteria feed on hmm. that's the that's the carbon cycle and and it's resid plant residues and bacteria recycle and it that's the way nature does it so that that ties into mid-contract management to crp then right i it mean could. There's, a, there's a disturbance quality that benefits potentially the carbon it, it, cycle or am i kind of talking about two different well, things well i don't want to get too far down the road of you know what we should be doing different on rules but it's just uh the 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 vegetative component that's out there is out of balance with what maybe nature would benefit from as well as a wildlife population gotcha so something's a little broken not too far off from a saline site where the nutrient cycle is broken the water cycle is broken all right so, so let's talk about that. The saline site is visual to everybody, right? You're driving down the road, and you can see this, what might be a, a temporary or seasonal wetland, or at least that's what it looks like. But, um, you know, a farmer has tried to, to grow a, a corn row 
through there. Corn um, is part of their farm for production, but it doesn't grow at all. So explain the biology where, or, uh, let's start with explain the, um, where this concept come from um, to work on saline soils. Was it South Dakota corn or was it pheasants forever or whose you know, idea was it? Well, it, I, I'd say the, uh, so our, our particular program, the partnership program initiated with, uh, I know all three of us were there in, in a little town of Watagua on a field staff meeting or a staff meeting, team staff meeting. And I know Jim, Jim was harping on it for quite a little bit saying, geez, you know, there's, there's quite a problem here. And, and the more we looked into it, you know, there are CRP was available for these types of sites, but we just weren't getting the enrollment. And we were just brainstorming and bashing our heads against the wall, really, and just going, what uh, what can we do? And, you know, what we talked about. And, you know, and the farmers yeah. were asking the same question, what's right. going on in my field? Right. Because right. yeah. nothing's growing. Right. And they could have uh, enrolled in, like, uh, corners sort of thing, C- or what would would have? 18C, CRP, yep. CP, 18C. Which is called saline soil, CRP. Oh, so there is an actual yeah, practice, practice, practice in the, okay. But we only had 18,000 acres enrolled in the state. Okay. And problem was as bad as it always was but you know some of it was it's a long-term contract and these these areas you know you maybe could grow wheat in it one year and but the beans didn't do so good Hmm. so there's a level of salinity that was playing into it and eventually it gets to the point where it really wouldn't germinate anything and at that point it gets i mean we really hate to see it get to that point Mm -hmm. we should have been doing some sort of remedial action long prior to that but uh the farmers were seeing this and and there's some there's some reasons that are outside of our control too as to why this is happening some of it's our parent material soil underneath okay some areas are way more prone to it than others especially areas in the james river valley which is happens to be where you know we'd like to see maybe a few more pheasants as well but um there there's a real shallow high calcium high sodium parent material soil that's fairly close to the surface and when you when you till and when you um, uh, expose that soil okay so you don't have any protection on it any old residue or protection water tends to evaporate well it's bringing up all those calcium and and sodium parent materials along with the water because they're easily dissolvable that's why it's a really a water issue it's evaporation Hmm. and what happens when you boil your water dry on the stove Mm -hmm. you end up with a big white scum in the bottom that's exactly what's going on and and uh it's also uh relating to a you know maybe a crop rotation that doesn't have enough high carbon high residue crops in it and, and this is back to this carbon to nitrogen mm-hmm. ratio cycling. This is probably way more than anybody wants to learn about. But, but it's true. Nature has about 80% carbon, high carbon crops, high residue crops, and, and about 20%. And I shouldn't say nature. I should say our, our, uh, our South Dakota mid, midgrass prairie environment. That's what grew was mm. something about 80% high carbon. And, and about 20% uh, high nitrogen, hmm. so forbs and, and the le- green okay. leafy things. Well, when we go to corn and soybeans, we're, we're down to a 50-50. We got, we've got corn that is a, a real good high residue crop and soybeans, which are more of a nitrogen crop. But 
to get this back in balance, we really should only be growing beans about every fourth year, hmm. fourth, four or five years. And I, I have nothing against soybeans. They're a wonderful crop for South Dakota, but we can't grow them too often in some of these sites because we're going to leave our soils bare and exposed and some of these worsening issues that will start popping up. Hmm. So <clears throat> there's a soil health ag agronomic issue we're dealing with here that is, you know, the remedy to this is to get grass to grow back on these sites. And it may be a number of years, a perennial. you got to get the water cycle moving and working. So that's the solution to this, this acre. Uh, you can't keep doing what you're doing. Alfalfa may work if we can get the salinity down to the point that it um, uh, will germinate and grow, and they, they kind of start healing themselves from the outside. So farmer plants um, a perennial grass right. on the saline site. Yep. Quit and trying to grow a row crop in it. Yep. So quit trying. And the purpose of that is to pull the saline back deeper down it's into exactly the. exactly what we're doing. In, into the and dirt. And it goes with the water. And with the water. And it, my assumption is that water ends up helping to sort of dilute it too at the same time. Or is it just simply. It just keeps pulling, it down there. Pulling, so pulling it deeper into the soil. Because yeah. when it, the issue is when it comes up, right, okay. and evaporates. So is it in every and then concentrates? Is right. it in every field? But it's only an issue when there's a water component pulling it up through evaporation. There's that method, and there's another method which is a true saline seep, which is water going into the ground on top at a higher elevation. It hits an impermeable layer, and then it comes out somewhere else usually mm -hmm. in the lower part of the mm -hmm. field on the side of the hill and mm -hmm. and uh as you know as we uh, farm more and more of the landscape in the in the state mm -hmm. and and started farming maybe some of these hills that yeah used West to River be grass stuff. maybe they used to be grass and now all of a sudden these things start showing up in places where they weren't before hmm. uh, so to fix that you have to fix the top of the hill okay and, and that, that's a different situation, really, than what we're, we're dealing with our partnership. We're actually trying to treat that saline spot gotcha. where it's accumulating. But, uh, you know, helping, uh, it's, it's more than just fixing that site. It's also beginning a conversation and educating the farmer about how this happened and mm -hmm. how to avoid it in the future and what can you do on the rest of your field mm -hmm. to prevent this. So as I drive down the highway, <clears throat> I see these spots. They're real obvious. Um, they look relatively small to me. Is that, is that true? Or, I mean, when you, when you look at the statistic, though, 8.3 million acres, right. is that just a whole lot of corners? Or, or I, no. am I just not seeing the, how big some of these opportunities are? Yeah, it's, you know, from, I can speak from our program standpoint. Our average contract is 42 acres. Oh, so it's a bigger so You get chunk. bigger size fields because um, it's it's not just that white spot you see. Mm -hmm. It's impacting out from there. So, gotcha. And you have to make sure you're getting it all addressed. And okay, so I'm starting to get the picture here where um, so you got the these saline soils where the farmer can't grow corn, can't grow beans, can't grow a crop, right? There's an habitat opportunity from pheasants pre pheasants forever's perspective by putting a perennial grass or grass legume for mixture 
right? Because those grasses and the root structures go deeper. I'm understanding this, right? And it's pulling that saline down deeper into the soil. Well, it's so taking the water and using water and keeping the water table down where it needs to be. Kind of cleaning the topsoil, if you will, for making it... it. It's changing the concentrations for sure. Yeah. Yeah, of those things that... Making would, it healthier, I guess yeah, he yeah. said, is a better right. is a better way and of you're, And you're it. fixing that biology, too, that Ben started talking about it. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there that we can't see mm -hmm. that is wasn't there, but now it starts to heal and it starts to show up again and nutrients start cycling the way they're supposed to. How, how long does the healing take? Uh, I think it depends on how sick you were in the first place. Okay. <laughs> if that, you can compare it to So to is the health. window of opportunity or the window where you're having this habitat on, is it two to ten years depending or is it is that the right window maybe i think you're going to see a whole range of uh effects some of these maybe are areas that really shouldn't have probably been row cropped in the first okay. place you know where there's a really nasty parent material soil there that there's nothing you can do to fix that okay it should it, be it, habitat. it needs to stay in grass yeah you know and it could be great hayland Okay. You know, a lot of those might be uh, western wheatgrass type. A nat great native na makes great hay. Um, other ones, you know, maybe it's going to take a, a five-year period to uh, to get that area cured a little bit, and then you can maybe start using it a little bit more intensely, maybe making some more hay out there as well. Uh, but I think in order to really go back to farming it, 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 it it's going to take a bigger management change. Okay. And and incorporate more uh, more of these soil health principles. It's really a matter of how much of that a farmer's willing to do. My my thought was that it was sort of a let's plant it to habitat for sort of a let's say five year period, quote unquote heal it. Then maybe you plant corn for a year and then it goes back to it, habitat and you go into a habitat corn rotation it maybe could it maybe could and uh, then you could use those acres that way but um i think every case is going to yeah. be it sounds like there's a bigger different. issue with a lot of these acres where you know the, the traditional row crop cash crops are not the soil is just not environmentally right for the cash crops. And you've talked about alfalfa and yeah. hay a couple times where, you know, maybe they can make money, create habitat at the same time. Maybe it's a conservation opportunity through CRP. Yeah. Okay. Um, why, why doesn't, why, why don't I see this in Minnesota? Why don't I see it in Iowa? Cause when, I do recognize when I'm going duck hunting in, in North Dakota, I've seen this in North Dakota, I've seen it across South Dakota, but really, when I think about it, I don't even know that I've seen it in Montana. It feels to me like it's it's the Dakotas only. It, it, am I misperceiving you, that? Um no. Now, the Minnesota, why they don't have they don't have that real shallow parent material type Kay. situation. You know they've they've got nice deep rich high organic matter soils. It was it was formed under a different uh, process. We have a shallow glaciated till that you know some of this was old lake bed, old sea, an old ocean actually. Uh, basically from from uh, up clear up in North Dakota, the area you mentioned where this is prevalent, right. uh, the James River Valley, 
and and on, on the east side you have the 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 Crandall Hills is goes by several names but there's a rise and that was an old shoreline of this big ocean and it was a big glacier on the west side we're talking lake agassiz right lake yep. yeah yeah and and actually there's you know a layer you can find fossils of seashell marine mm. life in these parent material soils so you know that's been underwater before and uh, uh so was that salt water it was, it was okay yeah. okay so so it's no I mean, it's obvious that that would have been over the Dakota. So maybe yep. a little bit in far western Minnesota, you run into this Red River, yep. Red River Red Valley. River Valley yeah. uh, what about Montana? Is it eastern Montana? Montana has a lot of it, but uh, you know they're they're very dry, mm-hmm. and uh, or they have a lot of soils that would be susceptible to it. And um, I think you. You don't see it maybe as often because you aren't into that real heavy corn and soybean rotation out mm-hmm. there. People are still more small grain farmers. Right, a lot of wheat. A lot of high carbon crops. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those crops are a little more tolerant to that, but they have to be careful as well. It's, you can't shortcut these soil health principles anywhere in the world. Hmm. These, these are universal, and if, if you leave your soils exposed and bare, bad things are going to happen. And f- how much... It, how long has this been going on, this, this sal- saline soil initiative? Are we about year two, year three? As far as our partnership goes, it, it's been a discussion for five years. Okay. Um, our actual program has been on the ground for about four years. Okay. And it's pilot stage and then on to our actual partnership with South Dakota Corn Growers. So it, it's been going for a little while now. Um, we're, we're picking up steam. Um, and what are some of the obvious results that you see even in just a couple of years yeah um i'll jump in first on that one um just the conversation shift in the community Hmm. um when we started this you know a lot of people would see the white spots they didn't know what it was not everybody knows that it's saline soils um there's been a bigger discussion going on and i should mention too that sdsu did a lot of research on this to help identify the mm-hmm. cause you know we help fund some of that research so there's much more education i think that's what you're getting at. yeah there's more education out there there's more discussion and there's all alter- the landowners are learning their alternatives now um it's just part of that conversation where five years ago it wasn't a part of the conversation even hmm. you know like ben was saying we were sitting in a room together like why why is this out here nobody's enrolling it nobody's doing anything with it and it just wasn't talked about you know farmers just Kind of did what they kept doing, and and now that's a discussion of how do we fix this stuff. Um, that's been the biggest thing on my end. More than we've got about four thousand acres enrolled in the program, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. That's habitat. That's mission. Right. But we're getting that bigger conversation going now, where stuff's going on that we're not even aware of. Explain bigger conversation. Who's that between, and what's it about? With producers, um, producers amongst themselves, farmers, farmers yep, landowners. Um, they're having those conversations now without us. Um, it's just the snowball effect on this stuff has been tremendous. Um, hmm. It's we're on the cusp, like we said earlier, we're on the cusp of a lot of really cool things, and you know this program kind of got some of that rolling as a discussion between conservation groups and commodity groups. I mean, you know, we did our pilot program, like Ben was saying, um, that was a, a PF program um, funded with some state money, and then. Jim's boss and I started talking, and that's where our partnership with corn growers came from, hmm. was that understanding that, you know, 
we have a lot of the same goals mm-hmm. and, and it, it's amazing how much common ground we have here let's let's pair up on this and let's start growing so it's that win-win mm-hmm. yeah that's been my most rewarding thing with this whole thing um is just seeing the fact that yeah we got to carry it out in front of them with our partnership and the saline soils program mm-hmm. but nowadays it, it's a, it, an everyday conversation without us even being involved all the time so my assumption then is that conversation starts with saline in there, then it leads to what other conservation opportunities might be financially beneficial and, and also sustainable on that yep. producer, farmer, rancher's land. Yep. Right? And I'm even hearing some cases now of farmers that had a neighbor enroll in our program. Um, and he still doesn't want to do programs, but he's taken that mix that we use with that producer and going and buying on his own and putting on a ceiling site. Hmm. So we had no skin in that game, but it got, got taken care of off of the work we've done. Ben, what about bird response? And those 4,000 acres that Matt talked about, um, you know, are pheasants using those acres, uh, butterflies, um, mm-hmm. pollinators, turkeys, <coughs> ducks? What's what's happening? Oh, I, you know, I'd have to imagine all the above there, and, and I've firsthand seen, you know, uh, and had discussions. A uh, good buddy of mine, far, young farmer down by Andover, um, you know, just kind of asking around, you know, what are you seeing out there when he put up put it up for hay? And, yeah, there's birds around it, and uh, I'm sure those birds probably very likely could have nested in there. Um, you know, and I uh, was actually really surprised to see the amount of broadleafs, uh, the, the sweet clover and the alfalfa, and even just, well, we do have a little milkweed in that mix as milkweed well. Milkweed in that mix as well, yeah. And uh, actually, yeah, I couldn't believe how much milkweed were in some of these sites. And, uh, yeah, milkweed's what make, makes monarchs, mm-hmm. uh, no question. And, um, again, we talked about, uh, you know, a lot of these a lot of these sites are in the prairie pothole region. So if a pheasant's going to nest there, a duck's going to nest there. Um, and uh, so I'm sure we're, we're definitely creating some opportunities for waterfall as well. Um so yeah, no, I mean, all all around, I just get mostly feedback from from producers, but um, they like what they're seeing, and also they're just so happy to to grow something there again. I mean, they're farmers; they want to grow, and uh, and so yeah, I get a lot of positive response there. That uh, you know, I put up so many bales out here, the grass is looking great, and uh, you know, I left you know half of the year, so me and the kid go out hunting, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it takes a little longer than say a maybe a CRP because it is some pretty rough ground. To, as far as establishment goes, it is pretty tough to get stuff going, so it might take an extra, extra growing season. But once that finally kind of does fill in, um, yeah, there's, I'm sure, I'm sure birds used every single site we had. So we've got uh, 4,000 acres currently enrolled, 8.3 million acres of opportunity. Uh, folks that are listening, or maybe they know some landowners in South Dakota. How do, how do folks learn more about the program and what's available to them uh, through the Saline Soils program? You know, they can reach out to any of our farm bill biologist staff in the state. Um, reach out to Jim himself, him himself at, at Corn Growers. Um, any of us will talk all day about this kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> um, there's, and there's a ton of, ton of different... Help them out, Jim. Right. Jim, you go. <laughs> um <laughs> Really, I think, you know, there's good help at any of the NRCS offices mm-hmm. locally in the state. And, uh, you know, as Matt said, we're all willing to, to visit with anybody about it. I'm really excited. It, it's starting to capture a little bit of attention in other places that you maybe wouldn't expect. And and I, I'm really uh, excited about the opportunity maybe to, to sit down with some other partners and, and engage and, and see what else yeah. we can do with this. 
like you said, there's a lot of opportunity. Mm-hmm. It takes some money, but every dollar goes in the ground with this program. It's very simple. Right. And that's it, it, every dollar equals results. And it, it's results in places you may not even think about. What do you mean? Uh, reduction in, uh, in fertilizer. Hmm. There, there's uh, a lot of people interested in, in improving the sustainability of their agribusiness company, okay. whatever it might be. Um, could they help and then take credit for that reduction that this we've done this much more reducing, and that improves the efficiency of, the, of that nutrient use in the field? Hmm. By getting getting rid of the yield drag, you might say, hmm. we're saving inputs on those acres that would otherwise be out there and wasted. So that the farmer's interested in that too. He doesn't have to pay as much for some of the inputs on that field. And as you remove that acre from production, the average yield per acre goes up. And that's really uh, an interesting deal because a lot of the safety net programs are based on your average production. Hmm. So it just makes a lot of sense here in ways you might not be thinking about, at least those in the wildlife community. This makes a lot of sense agronomically as well as, you know, the safety net tools that we have for our farmers. And Uh, and are there dollars and acres available to enroll right now if folks want to stop in their NRCS office? There's some options out there federally. we're working on you know, our po- our program has been so popular um, that we're currently in the back into a fundraising mode. Okay, I'm trying to get more funds available. Um, we're working on a couple different avenues there. Matt and I have uh, exchanged thoughts a little bit about how much carbon are we sequestering by mm. planting a perennial grass on an acre that otherwise is void. Yeah, so there's an expectation that we're going to have a CRP general sign up coming up in the the near future. Will and it sounds like there's, at present, there's more interest than there is capacity to enroll acres. When the general sign-up finally gets announced, hopefully soon, um, will there be opportunities for landowners to try to sign up for, what was the CP? 18 C. They could use that under the continuous well, sign-up. Oh, sc- okay, so that's a continuous. Um, yep, yep. But you can do general general sign up on these acres also so i remember the last general sign up um was just pathetic that two landowners in the entire state of south dakota 101 total acres were accepted into the general sign up will the kind of the recognition of the saline soil issue do you think it'll those acres will score higher through the environmental benefits index or is that too early to tell that's probably too early to tell but i know some people that i could talk to about it's something it's a good thought yeah (laughs) i wish i'd have thought of that one right um (laughs) yeah there you go bob Uh, hey (laughs) i mean did i just create more south dakota it's all gonna boil down to the the details of that you know elusive and hard to understand ebi formula that they use and you know, maybe maybe as if we as a state came together and said, this is a priority for mm-hmm. us, we need to do something about that. You could probably find some points right. in that. But beyond that even, um, there's there's going to be some options coming up through the Environmental Qualities Incentive Program. 
um, which is more working lands program through NRCS. Okay, yeah. So, um, so I always fall back in the trap of thinking about CRP. And I'm trying to change right? your mind on that. Right. A so that, that's a good uh, that's a good point that. Yeah. Because this is working lands, it probably does qualify for a variety. Maybe CSP, EQIP, yep, uh, yep. Whole, whole, the whole acronym SOUP is available. Is available, and we have some great, great partners at NRCS in the state. I can't speak highly enough of those guys, and they, uh, they're thinking outside the box a lot. And we just had some more discussions today at a meeting Jim and I did, and Ben was part of it too, that um, maybe we can pull some special money aside out of equip for this this mm -hmm. exact problem that way we can sign up our rcpp is another program that uh mm -hmm. there's plenty of opportunity there if we can assemble the you know the right group of partners in a financial package that requires a match component but rc you can double your money <laughs> rcpp regional conservation partnership program for yeah. the, the another acronym for folks yeah. out sign up we got there will be a test later yeah something before december 3rd this year so okay. it's coming right up yeah. here but any any final thoughts on on saline soils it, it, you know it's, it's when i think about south dakota i always think about uh, from a pheasants forever perspective i think about innovation you know th this is where the community habitat pheasant coalition started um i think the very first safe acres in the entire country were enrolled in at you maybe enrolled them Matt. I, yeah, yeah, yeah i remember that event right one little feather in my hat um, i just latch on i beat jim to that one you know you it, there's been that the public walk-in program here for for decades um you know the the public access component built on top of the james river crap which i believe was the first place in yep. the country where CREP and public access were tied together. Right. Saline Soils is another example of tremendous innovation connecting um, you know, what farmers want, what hunters want, and what conservation needs. Um, what else do you see on the horizon related to maybe it's saline soils or, or other programs um, from a soil perspective or from a habitat perspective? I like I like how Bob calls them, you know, these super creative and ingenious ideas. But really, it's uh, work with farmers, plant a little grass, and uh, give them a little money to do it. And, and so, really, uh, some and listen to them and listen to them, yeah. exactly working with them. And and yeah. it's not even about the dollars. Really, like I said, we're getting results um, on our own. But uh, so we actually in South Dakota, we seem to dumb everything down a little bit and get some results that way. Um, but anyways, it's uh. I appreciate that the kind word. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's, uh, but no, I guess, I, I think continue to go down this path. You know, the like this, this discussion here, working with corn growers, soil health position with pheasants forever, just working with farmers, working lands. I think that's that's going to be probably, you know, the biggest room for growth and opportunity. There is is continuing to to work with farmers, uh, listen to them. Um, you know, take their ideas, the pros and cons of the programs that are available out there, and find ways to tweak those and make them work for the producer because in the end um it's it's the the private land private farmer that uh is making the birds in the state and you know you cannot uh yeah you you can't uh not make progress without working with them on a mm -hmm. daily basis yeah that that's an interesting point you know it, uh, pheasants forever has always been had a pretty good reputation in, in state of south dakota and it, it, particularly in the ag community is evidenced by here we, you know, one of our biggest partners in the state is South Dakota Corn. And it, it, you find that to be pretty true that the reputation of Pheasants Forever's um, 
positive in, in I, the ag community? I, I do, and it, it uh, is evidenced by this partnership. I mean, we had Howard Vincent was our keynote speaker at our annual uh, uh, meeting, which is every January. At the South know? Dakota Corn yeah, Annual Meeting? and he he knocked it out of the park, I tell you. He, he did a fabulous job of uh, communicating just these things that we're talking about. Yeah. And and uh, we're welcoming uh, Pheasants Forever and, and, you know, trying to strengthen this idea. And we want to invite others. We don't want this to be exclusive. We want others on board, and, and let's, let's see what we can do. Um, you know, because it, times are tough. This has been a challenging year for a lot of farmers. And, you know, so many farmers, because of this just tremendous 600% more than normal moisture. Mm. Um uh some counties are over 75 percent prevent plant means they didn't get a crop in mm-hmm. they were unable to get anything in the ground a lot of that remained wet and has turned into a weedy overgrown jungle and they can't get in there to till it uh or mow it or spray it now airplane is maybe an option for some but but uh you know there's a lot of places for those pheasants to be um that said, I, I think, you know, th- th- this can't have been anything but helpful for, uh, you know, just brood rearing habitats, just tremendous. Hmm. So if they got a nest if off. If they got a nest off, I think they probably had a good shot. And we're seeing kind of this, at least what I'm hearing and seeing, is there's a really large range of age class birds mm. out there. Mm-hmm. You'll see yeah. them from little chicks all the way up to, you know, fully colored. The, the main takeaway here is there's a tremendous connection between how we treat our soil and how much habitat, how much food, and how healthy our entire world is. And as you're driving through the Dakotas, both north and south, and you see that white spot in the ground, you know, you have an opportunity, whether you're a hunter, whether you're a landowner, whether you're a producer, to talk to um, the Natural Resources Conservation Service of Pheasants Forever Farm Bill Biologists about opportunity that exists with those acres. It's, it's as visible of a habitat opportunity as exists anywhere in pheasant country. Yeah. Saline soils, it's that, those white spots in the fields that we as an entire society in particular conservation community can work with landowners to plant habitat, heal that soil and figure out ways to help a producer, um, farmer, rancher, make a little bit more money on the bottom line. So encourage folks, if you listen to this podcast and you want to learn more, give our Pheasants Forever Farm Bill biologists a call. You can find them on the Pheasants Forever website at pheasantsforever.org or at quailforever.org. Or just stop into your local USDA service center. Jim, if folks want to reach out to you at uh, South Dakota Corn, ask you some questions, how do people get connected? Probably the the best way to get a hold of me is by email, or they could call my cell phone. I generally uh, don't spend a lot of time in an office. But Which, I, d- I get uh, contact on, on my cell phone, so an email, jimr at sdcorn.org. That's it, jimr at sdcorn.org. There's, there's how to reach Jim. Matt? M, M. Morlock at pheasantsforever.org. And B. Lardy, L-A-R-D-Y. 
at pheasantsforever.org. Yeah, SD Soil and Wildlife on Twitter too, I suppose. If you want to see some cool projects and try to figure out or see how soil health relates to pheasants, uh, check it out. Say, say your Twitter handle again. Uh, SD Soil and wi- or SD Soil underscore Wildlife. Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, visit with me in Pierre, South Dakota. I am Bob St. Pierre, <laughs> and I'm going prairie grouse hunting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. If you want to learn more about saline soils, and we encourage you to find out more because it's 8.3 million acres of opportunity. Look us up at pheasantsforever.org. Thanks, folks.